0: So we're starting a new series today, and this one is all about the most interesting person who ever lived, and the most important, because history is his story, and heaven is filled with his glory. This sermon is all about Jesus, this series. And it's topical, but we're going to use John 7 as a framework. And we're going to consider the identity of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, and today the uniqueness of Jesus, which really is a subject of massive proportions. So we're only going to have time to briefly look at some of the highlights. And as we do, we find ourselves in very specific circumstances. In 2020, it's been all about the pandemic. And people are getting frustrated and tense. Some claim that uh, the restrictions are overreaching. There's too much. Others claim that uh, we underestimate the danger. We are doing too little. In any case, it seems like all eyes are fixed on this crisis. It's almost omnipresent, 24-7. But let's make that 24-6. Because on Sundays, we get to shift our focus to where it truly belongs. We get to fix our eyes on something far more important. And so I'm here to remind you that it's all about Jesus. It still is. And you've heard that repeatedly, whether it's from the worship team, from Pastor Ryan, from the elders. We testify that TBC is still all about Jesus. Because they say if you put five Baptists in a room, you could end up with six different opinions. Except when it comes to Jesus. On that, we're unanimous. There is no controversy. All the polls are closed. All the votes have been counted. Jesus has no rival. There's none who can compare to him. You see, while you are unique, just like everybody else, Jesus is unique. Like nobody else. He has no equal. Therefore, it's all about him. And we understand that. But just imagine someone with no church background attending an evangelical Sunday morning service through no fault of his own. Talk about culture shock. It's like entering a parallel universe. You hear things like, You are exalted. He shall reign, King of kings, Lord of lords, blessing and honor and glory and power unto the Lord belong. I mean, that just uh, seems so bizarre and excessive. What is all the fuss about? You sound like a bunch of fanatics. Dial it down a notch. But we can't. As C.S. Lewis said, If Christianity isn't true it is of no importance. If it is true, it is of ultimate importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. And that's why we can't dial it down. We are not just moderate Christians, half-hearted believers, lukewarm churchgoers. This is not a hobby for us. This is of ultimate importance because there are eternal consequences. And so for us, life is all about Jesus. Because he's not just the founder of a major religion. He's not merely one of the most influential people of human history. And to borrow wrestler Bret Hart's motto, he's not just the greatest there is or ever was or ever will be. He's so much more than that. He is absolutely unique. There's never been anyone like him. In fact, you can't make this stuff up. After 2,000 years of intense scrutiny, in-depth analysis, and abrasive criticism, he still fascinates us. After 2,000 years, Jesus still surprises us. He shocks us and often fills us with a sense of wonder. And his uniqueness is displayed in every chapter of the Gospels. And we're going to use John 7 as a framework for this series, where in verse 1 it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. What was all the fuss about? His enemies have never tired of him or lost interest in him or gotten bored. Even today, their attention is transfixed, and many have dedicated their lives to one purpose, to proving that Jesus was not unique. That's more important to them than finding the cure for cancer or coronavirus. 2,000 years ago, they were aroused to burning hatred, seven times hotter than usual. A hatred so passionate that they wanted to kill him. In fact, that was the number one item on their weekly agenda. How can we get rid of this toxic heretic? And so for the time being, Jesus was doing some extreme social distancing from the wildfires of controversy down in Jerusalem. Verse 2, But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near... This was a tremendously popular festival which commemorated how God had provided for his people after the exodus from Egypt when they lived in tents during the wilderness years. During this festival, the residents moved out of their houses, set up lean-tos and makeshift shelters. They all went camping. And it was a lot of fun. In fact, there was a proverb A Hebrew proverb that stated, He has not seen joy who has not been present at the Feast of Tabernacles. So forget Disney. Jerusalem was the happiest place on earth, even during the Roman occupation. And like Stampede Week, the population density would increase significantly. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. You can only go so far in Galilee. If you want to make a greater impact, you need to go to Jerusalem. Because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. There were still so many doubters, even in his own family. Verse 6, Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come, for you any time is right. And here we see a definite aspect of his uniqueness. Because for Jesus, his entire life was all about timing waiting for the right opportunity. That's why for him it was very different. The disciples often didn't know where they were going or what was about to happen. They just followed their master. For them, it didn't matter when or where. But for Jesus, it was different. He was unique. He had a sense of destiny. And to accomplish that, timing was everything. That's why you often find him saying, My time has not yet come. You find that throughout the Gospel of John. Chapter 2, verse 4, 8, 20, 12, 23, 13, verse 1, 17, verse 1, and twice in this chapter. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come, but for you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Jesus made a lot of people uncomfortable. Especially the kind of people you wouldn't expect. The self-righteous. The religious right-wing. He was not like them. He was different. And that's why he was at the top of their hit list. Verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. This would not be the final act. The end would come soon enough, within six months, at the next Passover. But not now. Verse 9 says, having said this, he stayed in Galilee. And so there was a pause. The disciples go to the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus temporarily stays behind. Which gives us time to reflect, to think about his life, and how unique it all really was. And you can start with his birth in the fullness of time. Recently in the U.S., millions of people have been anxiously waiting for someone to defeat Trump. Well, in the Jewish nation, everyone was waiting, desperately waiting, for God to send them a Savior, a Messiah, who could deliver them from the Romans. And their expectations were enabled by the prophecies given centuries ago. Prophecies about a unique birth. In fact, we can't, still, we still can't grasp it. Not even science can understand it because it was a virgin birth. Mary was his biological mother and Joseph was his stepfather. I mean, there have only been like what, three virgin births in all of history? Uh, Maybe we need a recount on that. No, no. It says there was only one. This was totally unique. And yet from a human perspective, it was nothing special. Just a couple of peasants having a child in a barn. Nevertheless, there was this profound disturbance in the force. And the dark side aroused a nearby Sith Lord to send a death squad to execute that newborn ASAP. Why? What's all the fuss about? Red alert! We've been breached. Battle stations. This is not a drill. And just to make sure that they got the right one, they murder all the male children in the vicinity, all boys two years and under. Why was the evil king so threatened by this helpless peasant child? What was it about him? Perhaps this was no ordinary human. Maybe he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who will make Israel great again. Well, that makes him the one to watch. The powers and principalities of darkness knew that something of utmost significance was happening in Bethlehem. And as it turns out, it was so significant That it split human history in two. Splitting the atom was moderately important compared to this. From now on, history would be measured from that birth because he was unique. And yet, most of his life is spent in the middle of nowhere, in obscurity, In a village, everyone dismisses as insignificant. The jeopardy question is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, of course not. But that's where Jesus spends most of his life. That's where he grows up. In an ordinary, low-income family with brothers and sisters. That's where he learns his father's trade. He becomes a carpenter. Nothing special about that. And this goes on for years and years until he's about 30. Until the revival breaks out and a man named John does one of the most outrageous things ever. He calls Israel to repent and be baptized. Now many prophets have called Israel to repent. But baptized? Are you kidding? That's unheard of. That's absolutely outrageous. But the response was impressive. And it indicated that maybe God is up to something. And so the people asked John if he is the Messiah. And he says, no, I'm just a wedding planner. I'm just getting the bride ready for the groom. Well, it's around this time that Jesus lays down his tools and begins to travel informally teaching people that the kingdom of God has come. He doesn't tell anyone who he is. He he lets his actions speak for themselves. And so there are miracles. People are healed. The blind receive sight. Lepers are cleansed. The lame can walk. It's all very impressive. But it's not unique. Others have displayed supernatural power. We think of Moses and Joshua or Elijah and Elisha. What was unique were his words. It's how he spoke, how he taught, with authority. Luke 4.32 says, They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. But what authority? What are his credentials? He's not an ordained rabbi. He's not a registered religious instructor. He's certainly not a Pharisee or a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, he regularly dismisses their arguments and overrules their teachings. You have heard it said by the scribes and Pharisees, But I say unto you, Well, no wonder they got upset. He claims to have a higher authority. Who does he think he is? So there's another disturbance in the force. And the dark side again is on high alert. And their suspicions are armed like heat-seeking missiles. But Jesus does not attempt to defuse this explosive situation. On the contrary, he dares to commit The unpardonable sin in front of witnesses. He forgives the transgressions of a paralytic. Outrageous, unheard of, blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins? That was truly unique and absolutely unacceptable. To the status quo, Jesus' teaching was like a malignant virus that threatened the spiritual health of their nation, but they had no antidote to this heresy. They tried to discredit him. They tried to expose him as a fraud. They sent their best debaters to confront him, but Jesus left them all speechless and humiliated. It was as if they weren't even on his level meanwhile the crowds who attended his lectures are fascinated by his words they were unlike anything they had ever heard luke 4:32 22 all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips mark 12:37 the, the large crowd listened to him with delight In fact, in John chapter 7, when the temple guards are sent to arrest Jesus, they come back empty-handed. And so they're asked, why didn't you bring him in? And this is what they said. Finally, the temple guards went back, verse 45, to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Here's what they said, verse 46. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. What? What kind of an excuse is that? Has any officer of the law ever accepted that? These are hardened, ruthless men. They've heard every excuse. They're not gullible or naive. They always get their man. So arrest him. We can't. There's something different about him. No one ever spoke the way this man does. it's it's so unique well his followers they were even more enthusiastic in John 6 when Jesus commits another unpardonable sin and offends his fan club so profoundly that they disband and leave the building Simon Peter does not follow them to the exits instead he simply says Lord to whom should we go you have the words of eternal life We couldn't possibly imagine living without hearing your words. Your words revive our soul. They give joy to our heart. They're sweeter than honey. They're more precious than pure gold. And in obeying them, there is great reward. There is no substitute for your words. They satisfy and sustain us. Have you experienced that this week? as you read and meditate on the words of Jesus? Of course, Simon's enthusiasm hit the ditch because Jesus started talking about his death at the hands of his enemies. And that was outrageous. No, Lord, no way. That'll never happen to you. You're the Messiah. You're God's anointed. You're probably protected by legions of angels. No harm could possibly come to you. I mean, I don't get it. Who does this? Who considers his main purpose in life is to die? Everyone who has ever appeared on this planet has been compelled by a life force. We have to live. We have to survive at all costs. That's a big issue right now. We're all trying to stay alive. Wearing masks, all the other things that we have to do. Because we're compelled to live. It's our most basic instinct. But Jesus, who had the words of life, who came to give us an abundant life, Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life, claimed he had come to die, to sacrifice his life. That was truly unique. And that's exactly what happened. And it happened because of the greatest miscarriage of justice ever. Think about it. The Roman judge, Pilate, pronounces Jesus innocent of all charges. That was his verdict. Case dismissed. Court adjourned. And then he hands him over to the angry mob to be executed? Has that ever happened before? That's unheard of. That's impossible. How could that happen in broad daylight? And why didn't God stop them? Unless he was up to something. And so Jesus was crucified. It was barbaric, it was inhumane, but not unique because countless thousands were crucified. By the Romans. However, because of who he was, this crucifixion was very different. It was a transaction. Jesus was executed instead of us as our substitute. He paid the full penalty for our crimes so that there would be no balance owing. Imagine if somebody just pays off your mortgage. Wouldn't that be something? Pays off your student loans. Pays off your credit card debt. Jesus paid the full penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And it's all based on our acceptance of His terms in that transaction. Not by our merit but by faith. This is amazing grace and absolutely unique. But the transaction wasn't complete because they took the dead body of Jesus, tightly wrapped it in grave clothes, poured over its spices that adhered like crazy glue, which had three days to harden. And they laid the corpse in a borrowed tomb, sealed it with a two-ton stone, and then placed a squad of soldiers to guard the tomb. Has that ever happened before? Why would anyone guard a tomb? Well, those soldiers were actually not guarding the tomb. They were guarding the seal of Caesar that had been placed on the stone, as if it was Caesar's life they were protecting. And they were not rookies, because only battle-hardened military forces would be sent to a volatile place like Israel. Guarding the tomb. Why? What's all the fuss about? Well, the problem was that Jesus made two predictions. One, that he would be killed by his enemies. And two, that he'd be raised to life within three days. So every effort had to be made to make sure only 50% of that prophecy would be fulfilled. They issued a stock payment order. All funds were frozen. And then it happened. Something very unique. And the soldiers were the first to see it. And now these soldiers had already seen everything. They had stared into the jaws of death numerous times. But they'd never witnessed anything like this. They were so overwhelmed that they deserted their post, abandoned the seal of Caesar, and ran for their lives knowing that desertion was punishable by death. What happened? Well, afterwards, the followers of Jesus filter over to the tomb. First, the women come, and they see that the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. And then the men arrive, and they inspect the empty chamber. And that's when they begin to realize God has been up to something all along. As Josh McDowell points out, it wasn't so much the empty tomb that convinced them, because there could be many reasons for that, all kinds of fake news and alternative facts. It wasn't so much the tomb, it was the grave clothes. And McDowell has a good point, because they weren't torn apart as if some escape artist had been struggling to get free. They were intact, somewhat like a cocoon where a butterfly has emerged, except there was no tear. And the headpiece was neatly folded. In other words, Jesus made his bed before he left. It was as if he had simply dematerialized and teleported through the shroud. Well, what is the meaning of this? What is going to be the impact of this? And then came the reports, the rumors. The risen Lord has appeared to his disciples. And it was convincing because from that point on, everything began to change. Because the disciples had been absolutely devastated and demoralized by the crucifixion. They were ready to give up. The undertow of their grief was pulling them into the darkness of despair beyond any hope of recovery. You know, when a team loses a championship game, there are no other scenarios. There's no appeals. There's no recounts. And there's certainly no victory parades. Because when you lose, it's over and everything hurts. When that clock expires, there is such a finality that the losing players are left in a state of shock. But gradually, some light breaks through the gloom because there's always next season. Well, death does not give us that option. Death is final, world without end. Amen. But Jesus was unique because he won the battle in sudden death overtime. There is nothing else, there is absolutely nothing else that can account for the disciples' transformation. From defeated, dejected losers to exuberant, dynamic, world-defying overcomers. It wasn't because of some hallucination. They weren't on opioids or cannabis. They weren't drunk with wine. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they couldn't wait to tell Jerusalem all about it. Not just Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. They proclaimed that Jesus had triumphed over death and that now he offered life to all who would believe in him and receive him as Savior and Lord. And this message spread and spread against serious obstacles. The enemy tried everything within their power. To intimidate them, to silence them, and to stop them. So there was all this persecution, there were imprisonments, there were stonings, more crucifixions. They tried so hard to stop them. But they failed, absolutely failed. Because the truth was undeniable. And that's why we are here today. Because we too discovered that Jesus is unique. He has no rival, no equal, and there is no other option. There is no one who can come to the Father except through him, and there is no other name by which we can be saved. That is truly unique. And the reason I remind you of this is because we live in a world that is very similar This world is still under the control of the evil one. He still wants to intimidate us. He wants to stop us. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say will be used against you. The enemy is still trying to silence the followers of Jesus. I mean, look at our culture. We live in a very tolerant society that abhors censorship except when it comes to the name of Jesus. The elite cannot tolerate that. In Canada, pastors who officiate state funerals have been forbidden to mention his name. It would be rude, offensive, hurtful. When the minister who spoke at Harry and Meghan's wedding, when he brought up the name of Jesus, celebrity guests, Elton John was absolutely horrified. The camera hit him at just the right moment. It looked like he was suffering a severe case of acid reflux, where he'd been victimized by Category 5 flatulence. He was just horrified that that name would be mentioned in a church where a wedding was taking place in this age of enlightenment, this age of tolerance. It's obvious from that that Elton would not, be, would not enjoy being in heaven, would he? Because there it's all about Jesus. And somehow I think that's going to be his facial expression for the rest of eternity. In fact, there are many mild-mannered Canadians who are excessively polite. But somehow they get offended by that name their blood pressure rises, their makeup starts to run, they almost lose their composure and turn into the Incredible Hulk. Because our culture is willing to tolerate religion if it is multiple choice, as long as you don't claim that Jesus is unique. So we live in a society right now that is almost hermetically sealed against any divine intervention, so that we can conduct our lives as if God doesn't exist. We don't need the supernatural. We have science. We live in a culture that has tried to make Jesus irrelevant so that salvation isn't necessary, so that judgment is just a superstition. No one's worried about judgment. All of our hope is focused on the antidote to coronavirus. There's something far more dangerous than that. But nobody's concerned about it. This fatal form of denial has put us on a road that seems right, where wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But the good news is that God is up to something something good. Jesus is still in play, He's not irrelevant. And he hasn't disappeared because he lives in all those who believe in his name. And uh, the Alpha team estimates that's about 2.2 billion people around the world. Jesus lives in all who believe in his name. And you know that, that is what makes you unique. You're not just a clone Your individuality has not been dissolved in some kind of generic cult soup. Christ's presence in your life has changed everything. Your mind has been renewed and transformed. Your heart has been healed and enriched with compassion. Your personality has been redeemed and sanctified. In fact, because of Jesus, you have become the most interesting person in the room. And it's more than just an upgrade. For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So even from six feet away, there's a real possibility that people will see Jesus in us. As long as we are not ashamed. As long as we have the courage to acknowledge him before men. And it could be as simple as saying this. Yeah, I know everyone's worrying about the pandemic. It's, uh, for most, it's just all about the coronavirus. But for me, it's all about Jesus. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. But if you're ever interested, who knows? I might even be willing to tell you about it. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about timing. Back to verse 6. Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come, but for you any time is right. In fact, we have the opportunity to preach the message in season and out of season. 2020 has all been about the pandemic. All eyes are fixed on the coronavirus. Well, not all. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, not our circumstances. And of course, we wear masks and we follow appropriate protocol, but we do not panic and we do not let our hearts be troubled. Instead, we set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because in 2020, it's still all about Jesus. Amen? Father, we thank you that in spite of the circumstances that we're living through, which are so unprecedented, so unexpected, have really dis- been a major distraction. It's just thrown us. yet, The things that matter the most have not changed. In fact, they've become intensified and brought into higher resolution by the crisis that we face. You have become more precious to us, more important to us in this year than than ever before. And that is the way we look at the future. Because you are the author and finisher of our faith. We don't know how long we will live. But we know that our faith is safe and secure in your hands. And you'll bring it to completion. And so we praise you. And we affirm that with us, it is all about Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.